Hi, my name is Angel Manuel Soto, the director of Charm City, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It is going super swell. How about yourself? I'm, I'm doing well. And uh, of course, we're going to introduce ourselves because that's uh, something that we, we keep forgetting to do. When I'm not doing this podcast, I run a company called Hot Rod Cameras, and I also serve as a technical consultant to uh, many Hollywood productions. Uh, ben Rock, who are you? I'm a director and a recently published writer. I wrote a short story that was published in Video Palace in Search of the Eyeless Man based on the podcast, which I co-wrote and directed for Shudder. And our listeners can win your book right now, too. Yes, our listeners can win the book. And I believe it. all you have to do is go sign up for our YouTube page, which will be in the show notes. Yes, go to go subscribe to the Cinematography Podcast on YouTube and then comment on our most recent video, which is How to Vote. Definitely go watch the How to Vote breakdown. Hey, and I have weird news that I'm not going to go into great detail about, but I have a new manager. How about that? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Do you have a new manager because the old manager was not cutting it? No, I have a new manager because I haven't had a manager in, uh, you know, probably over 10 years. Hey, all right. Look at at you. That that manager is managing the hell out of you. Yeah, he's he's doing a really good job so far. So uh, let's let's uh, cross our fingers. So uh, Ilya, who is on the show today? On the show today is a director named Angel Manuel Soto. He is the director of Charm City Kings, which just uh, debuted on HBO Max. You should totally check out Charm City Kings if uh, you subscribe to that platform. And Angel a, is a, a real delight to talk to, and we'll get to that in just a minute here after our close focus. Uh, ben, what what should we uh, talk about in close focus today? What's our topic? Well, I wanted to talk about something that I feel like uh, this segment has become sort of the coronavirus update for the film industry, like us doing our own coronavirus industry update. Pretty accurate. And, uh, and this is not really an exception, but I feel like a lot of the coronavirus stuff is either gloom and doom or how difficult dealing with the coronavirus is. And I found an article on uh, IndieWire written by Christian Blauvelt. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Christian, called Star Trek Discovery is TV's first VFX heavy show to do an entire post-production from home. And I think this is something that coronavirus is speeding along, but it was, I think, inevitable, beyond inevitable. So they talk about in the article, like some high-end VFX being done from home, sending motion capture kits to actors to do pickups and stuff like that. All very interesting stuff. But as I have known since 2005, it is quite possible to edit a project literally anywhere in the world. You do not need to be in the same room with the people you're editing for. You don't need to, uh, you don't, you certainly don't need to be in a facility. There are places where being in a facility is helpful, but I think that one of the holdovers of the coronavirus pandemic, which is horrible and tragic and has rocked many industries, including our industry. I think one of the holdovers is a lot of work is about to be done from home by a lot of different people. And that means you can be a VFX guy working for a company in Canada and you could be, 
You could be in Bangalore. It doesn't matter where you are. You could be in Russia. You could be in Iceland. And I think that the VFX industry is notoriously a race to the bottom budget-wise and beaten up by producers. But I feel like the entire post industry, you know, kind of started being rooted in offices, facilities, etc. But even like the work that my wife does, for instance, as a producer on House Hunters, they're basically writing the shows in avid bays and they have everybody at home. Well, when the coronavirus pandemic started, uh, they sent everybody home with their avids. Well, why bother having an office at all? If you can just have everybody working from home or have everybody come in once, twice a week for a meeting, then go divide and conquer. Um, I think this is a workflow that probably won't stay around forever for every production, but I'll be surprised if it doesn't, even on like big Infinity War sized movies, if they don't have some of the VFX people working from home or, or you could have the editor working from home. Why make the editor like put on a suit and or not a suit? Why make the editor put on a ratty t-shirt and shorts to go sit in a bay when they could do the same thing from home and give you the identical quality. And I have personally done several edit sessions for clients on Zoom since this started, and it's exactly like being in the same room with them. Hmm. Well, uh, for any of our listeners who don't know what an Avid system is, an Avid system is a nonlinear editor uh, favored by television. Television industry, very, very, um, to this day, very heavy invested in Avid as opposed to uh, Premiere or Final Cut Pro, which might be more familiar to some of our listeners. Final Uh, Cut Pro. 2011 called and it wants its counterculture video editing system back. You're going to have to get off your your high horse for Final Cut Pro because it's insanely popular amongst the YouTube set. So that is a that that's a fact. While the YouTube set doesn't need my help in working remotely, that's all they do. Well, uh, I I think that you're right. I think that uh, post-production has been a stalwart for studio space and in-person sort of work for a long time. But there has also been a certain number of people, and I know plenty of people who have made indie features that were all cut in their living room or cut on uh, at their dining room table or or that sort of thing. So I know remote production and production for home for post definitely exists. I think that maybe the big difference is, is now is that the systems have gotten a little beefier. The internet connections have gotten a little bit more speedy. I think that's yeah. the big thing because you could have been editing on an Avid or a Final Cut Pro system. And again, I, w- I did this in 2005 for the first time ever. In 2005, I was making these films for Audi for this Audi campaign. And we were trying to get the post down to their budget. And my producer, Matt Compton, said, instead of bidding out to all of these post houses, what if you just edited these? And I'm like, but I... I can't just edit these like I don't want the client coming over to my house and you know seeing my stinky sweat socks like I don't want to have to deal with that and we said something to them and they're like oh my god we're all going to be in New York we're never going to be anywhere near you you can just if you could just send us files that would be ideal and that's the first time in again 15 years ago where I did a completely remote post-production workflow and it worked fine 15 years ago and we didn't have we had high-speed internet it wasn't anything like what we have now and uh, the computers obviously were nothing like what we're working with today going back to the beginning of the pandemic we did a uh, an episode with uh, Jeff Singh Peel you can uh, find it in at uh, camnoir.com and he actually talks about some of the higher end different sorts of remote desktop remote system editorial type of work that's going on in case someone wants to try to set up their own sort of system and it's based around something that is maybe slightly more professional slightly more more dollars but yes I think that uh, the options are only going to continue I do know that Panasonic has a new camera coming out that's going to be completely remote controllable 
via the web. As a matter of fact, you can control, I think, 12 or 15 of them remotely through the web, which is really cool. And then there's a, a Black Magic has a couple of also really clever little uh, remote switching systems and a, a system they call a bridge, which allows you to plug in basically a camera anywhere and get near full resolution sort of quality and everything streaming anywhere else in the world that's got an internet connection when you have the matching uh, other end of the bridge essentially so there's some, some really clever new systems coming up that are going to allow you to um, do live production do live post-production do all kinds of things that way well and in, in addition by the way to uh, higher internet speeds i think another thing that's happened is vfx the tools to make the vfx have become affordable enough that the artists can own it on their own system. So if you're working in Cinema 4D or Maya or Houdini, these are generally affordable, especially if you're like doing this for a full-time living. And then Blender, which is, uh, I think we've talked about Blender on here. Blender is open source and it's free. And if you're good at Blender, you can do kind of the same stuff in Blender that you can do in a lot of those other programs. I'm not going to act all smarty pants like I know the difference between Maya and Blender and Cinema 4D. I have tinkered in all of them. They are all way out of my uh, my my ability to grasp. We need to get com- but, composer Kay Zalatracci on the show to talk about the differences. That is true. So. Uh, Kay's, could, Kay's could and would love to walk us through all of this. Okay. But the <laughs> truth is, you could... <laughs> say like let's say you had you know some green screen assets and you needed to put somebody in a completely virtual landscape and you had one person doing the landscape and you had another person doing the shading and you had another person you know like whatever these assets are so shareable and so easy to send around that it really does kind of decentralize post and i don't you know i don't know of a major movie like a an avengers endgame kind of movie yet that has taken full advantage of this but actually i wouldn't be surprised if i was to learn that a lot of the VFX in some some of the movies we've gone to see uh, in theaters were not done by people at their houses. It, it's always amazing to me how often the uh, professional space tends to dip down into the more amateur type of space uh, as a way of convenience because the tools that are made for the amateur in the home market uh, is getting easier and easier and easier to access. And certainly things like After Effects, which are professional tools, and all of the ones I just named are, I think, way more hardcore professional. The question is, how large are the files that you're sending? They don't need to be that big a lot of times. Or if they are, you can get really high-speed internet and send them back and forth. And a lot of times, you know, you've got somebody doing all the rigging or whatever, and then another person does the posing or another person does the coloring or blah, blah, blah. And in the era of COVID, I think we're going to probably look back on this and say like, look, you know, stuff was being color graded remotely, meaning the director, I mean, uh, Fade and Papa Michael talked about that with us about the Chicago 7, where he wasn't able to be in the grade and it was all being done very remotely. This is going to be, I think, a little bit more common, the stuff that doesn't have to be done with people sitting in the room is not going to be done with people sitting in the room and the stuff that can be done even stuff that is traditionally done that way but can be done on zoom uh, or with similar tools it's all going to get done that way and it's going to end up it's going to be a cost-cutting thing and it's also going to mean that like you know we don't have to be driving as much we don't there don't need to be all these people on the roads in LA going to their post-production thing and also if you're good at your skill and you're well enough known in the industry you could say move to a a weird ranch in montana and live you know uh whatever life you wanted and just do your work from home Uh, i think it's also entirely possible now that a whole lot of things that you watch on tv are going to be post produced by someone not wearing pants that's uh that's the truth (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, so that's totally true. Unlike this podcast, <laughs> unlike where both this of podcast, us are fully we're, pants. we are totally wearing pants right now. I'm completely wearing pants right hey, now. Hey, Ben, let's get to the interview with Angel Manuel Soto. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Angel Manuel Soto, thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. You thank just you. you just had a fantastic world premiere of Charm City Kings, and it's your birthday. Yes, it is. Thank you. <laughs> Happy birthday! What, 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 what a great birthday present for you. It's a very very amazing birthday. It so happens that it always happens during Sundance, but this year. We're premiering Charm City Kings, and it happened to be the night before my birthday, so it feels great. Fantastic. Well, by the time your party was probably done after the premiere, it was your birthday. Yes, 100%. (laughs) So it's a real incredible achievement. This is a spectacular movie from beginning to end, and I think it will have broad market appeal. I could editorialize now and talk all about, about your movie, but I think that really our listeners want to hear from you, how you got involved with this project, and what this project means to you. So I got involved with this project pretty much uh, the the consequential way it happens. Uh, a script came to me. It caught my attention because it was written by Barry Jenkins. Yes, of course. So for me, it was, uh, of course, I wanted to be a part of something that he created. But more than that, I was compelled by the world that, that it was based on. Uh, it's based on the dirt bike riders of Baltimore. And, and they're notorious for being really good at what they do. There, you know? there is a ton of YouTube videos that yeah. uh, our audience members can go take a look at if, uh, if they, they want to check it out. It's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah, if they check out Bike Life Baltimore, uh, they're going to be able to see that these guys are masters of their craft. And at the end of the day, after watching a lot of what they do and seeing documentaries on them, I figured that a lot of the, uh, the reason why they do this is because not just because they like it, but because they find freedom. And, um, and for me, that was a very uh, compelling concept. Uh, and at the same time, the, this coming-of-age story of a young boy who is in that fork in the road of becoming a man in a marginalized community, uh, it really appealed to me because in Puerto Rico, I'm from Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico in and of itself is a marginalized place. Not just because it's an island in the Caribbean, but because we have been forgotten by the United States. And Baltimore is no different than that. And I definitely felt a connection in being able to tell a story about the disenfranchised youth, because I was one of them growing up. So I've always wanted to tell stories uh, about my experience, and I was able to find that in that script. I think this script is going to have some appeal to a lot of different people, especially people who feel like they're just scraping to get by. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of poverty in, in West Baltimore and the bike culture that you that that you're talking about and or that's featured in the movie. It, it is definitely a release. It's definitely a release. It's definitely in a way. And uh, it feels very homegrown and organic. It doesn't feel like anyone else uh, brought this into the space. It's something that really kind of rose up out of those that community. hundred percent. The authenticity that we were trying to protect from the beginning, it's, it was kind of like our motto throughout. We really wanted to be authentic to, to Baltimore. We wanted to be authentic to the culture. And we also wanted to be authentic to the struggle. There's a lot of themes to this movie uh, set against this incredible backdrop, this incredible setting, particularly, though, like the struggle to survive, toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. the importance of uh, of mentorship and strong role models. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you have a great cast. <laughs> like your cast is incredible. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson said that once that like 90% of directing was just getting like the best cast. Uh, I don't believe that's true. Actually. I think that, that you, the best cast still needs to have someone with their hand on the rudder to make sure that everything's going together and that the tone and fits. But yeah. talk a little bit about working with your cast. I mean, I can't imagine those roles played by other people now. I feel like it's like, that is, that's, that's it. That is your cast. That's and they amazing. did such, such a great job. So, so talk, talk about working with them. That's amazing. No, um, for me, it was, a, a pleasure having the opportunity to work with such talented actors. What I did, for example, if we go with the more seasoned ones, like working with Tiana Paris and Will Catlin was a dream come true. They're so professional. They steal the moment. They, they're so good that they're able to uh, help, you know, the young boys when they're in the same scene or even when well, with Mick who has never acted before um, that's incredible he did yeah. such a great job yeah so like being able to to have those professionals there really helped me in a way because I felt like I was learning so much from them uh, they made it very easy they they were very proactive also um, they came prepared with what they wanted to do and what they wanted to bring to the table so anything they brought up only took my ideas to a different level. And same thing with the kids. These three kids were phenomenal. And from the get-go, they were great. When we were doing like the last casting calls and the chemistry test, that's when we realized that we found gold. Like their reaction and their chemistry was impeccable from day one. It almost as if they've been friends forever. And that, that's something that I recognize that it's really hard to find. It's really hard to create. Uh, when it doesn't work, you can tell. You can absolutely tell. <clears throat> and here, man, they're like, they're still like super best friends. And you see them now, the way they banter is exactly like the movie. So it was like very easy for them to be those type of characters. Uh, but as far as Mouse goes, for example, that's Yahi. <clears throat> Yahi is... He, he's in almost every single, every single scene of this movie. Yeah. It's, inc it's incredible. He carries... You know, he carries huge parts of the story all the way through. It's like, a, yeah. yeah, just blown away by him. Yeah, he's definitely the, the emotional weight carries on his shoulders. But apart from that, he's like an old soul. He's an empathic person. He likes to connect before acting or before doing anything else. So what I like about him is that he's not a reactive actor. I feel like he internalizes everything and he tries to find a motive to everything he does. And that really helps me in controlling the tone and the emotional arc during the film because he's very well aware of where he wants to go and the same thing with the kids like Didi who plays Lamont he's completely opposite in real life as, as to Lamont is so it was very fulfilling seeing him step up to to that role which is like a hard kid and with Kasai who's playing Sword of God it was really interesting to see him find a way to channel his his comic behavior because he he's a comic by heart he's so he's the funny one he's always been the funny one and funny story in the casting when he first stepped into the room we knew he was sort of god wow like, well, like right. yeah yeah you're gonna do the test but this is this is yours so don't worry <laughs> about it so he really embodied sword of god and and gave this life to to this kid who as you saw the movie it's a very important piece of it. And when it came to like Meek, for example, and you yeah. got like Chino and Willie Queen, yeah. who are all 
real writers because Mickey's also a writer yeah. uh, Chino is probably like the, one of the best ones in the world wow. and Willie Queen is probably like if not one of the few uh, women I know she's the best woman that does this yeah. in the world wow. and they're genius they did their own stunts they really step up to the plate nice. and they delivered something amazing because they were able to tell their story they were able to come from a place of real life experience that it doesn't get more authentic than that Like, I really did not need them to be phenomenal actors. No. I just need them to express who they really were, and I think that's levels up. Let me tell you, though, you must have created a space for that, though, because every single one of them has a super solid uh, performance. There isn't there isn't a weak one in the in the bunch. So, no, I, well, well, good on you for, for being able to draw that out. Because that's Thank not, you. that's especially, I know, difficult with, with non-actors, with people who, you know, that, 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 that this is something new for them. Hey, uh, I want to change gears a little bit and talk about the production, because this is the Cinematography Podcast, and I, I'm sure this wasn't a massive budget movie, but clearly you had you had a couple of toys uh how many production days was this this movie scheduled and i bet you did a bunch of nights uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, i think overall with with some reshoots that we had to do we had like three days of reshoots it was a total of 40 days oh wow all right uh, great 40 days but with uh like you said mouse is uh yahi is almost in every frame of the movie yeah yeah that was the major obstacle was dealing with sh- children hours. Yeah, yeah, of course, so, which is which is a lot more restrictive. Way more restrictive. So we definitely, uh, apart from you know, my visual language has always been more on the wonder side, uh, and and doing long one takes out of necessity more than anything. Yeah, yeah. And here, I wanted to bring that into into this project but what helped was the nature of the production so we really got we had to get creative in in how we were going to tell this without falling into a gimmick of wonders 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 and that's where kate arismendi uh who which, is the, which is the next thing i was about to bring up so yeah, yeah how, she's the baby mama of the <laughs> film uh and she definitely took all of my ideas and elevated them and she brought her own stuff into this and she only made it better i'm, I'm curious was this entire movie uh, storyboarded out shot for shot or did you find a lot of it on the day were you uh or was it a combination of both uh we did not have the luxury to find it on the oh, day oh really okay so we spent weeks like long weeks long days and nights creating a shot list uh going to the set do like a preliminary blocking and moving the camera around to see how it's gonna fit better. We did do a lot of storyboarding for the chasing. That makes uh, sense. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the stunt, there's a, a big stunt. Yes, of course. And um, the robbery. So in order to like nail, because of time. Yes, of course. We really yeah. needed to get exactly what we wanted and we needed to convey everything to the stunts and we needed to convey everything to the uh, special effects people. So, cause there's kids involved. So we really needed to be super safe. And for the sake of safety, we went into the whole storyboarding aspect of it. Yeah, uh, I gotcha. Had, had you and uh, Caitlin ever worked together before? We have not. I've been a long time fan of her work. I think, you know, she's probably one of the best DPs out there working right now. Yeah, I was going to say, well, it's an incredible looking movie. And uh, you guys play a lot in uh, cooler, cooler tones of light, especially at night. And uh, really, really wonderful nighttime setups, which feels very naturalistic uh, to a certain extent, but then also heightened a little more specialized. And especially with like a lot of the, the, the cooler tones. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular look that you knew you wanted? How did you guys come up with the sort of overall tone and look for the, for the movie? 
movie? Well, from the get-go, I really wanted to make a, I really wanted to make a raw, naturalistic-looking work. And Kate felt the same way. And of course, she was not just going to do available live, but we did a lot of available as much as we could. And uh, we really wanted to be authentic to Baltimore. We didn't want to create a heightened version of Baltimore. We didn't want to create something that felt fake. Our, our biggest inspiration, I'll say, it was Baltimore itself. Uh, we really wanted to capture Baltimore with all its glorious lights. It's very impressive how it looks at night. Baltimore is beautiful. And just the colors of the buildings and uh, that Baltimore red and uh, the concrete and this urban jungle that it's so oppressing and beautiful at the same time. Uh, we really wanted to protect that light. Baltimore has a unique light to it. And, um, and I know that Kate wanted to be really honest about it. How did the neighborhood and the places that you were shooting that were on location feel about you guys being there? Were you welcomed by the community? Was the community into uh, into a giant, well, a relatively large production there that had taken over the streets? <laughs> I felt, for the most part, the people of Baltimore were very happy that something new was being told about the city. As amazing as The Wire is, it's an amazing piece of work. A lot of people from Baltimore, they want to see themselves more than The Wire. And at first we had the opportunity, you know, of being able to, to talk to Willie Wayne, who is kind of like the, the, the leader of the Wolfpack. And he's, he was able to gather like 300 writers for us. Wow. Like it was that powerful. And, you know, the bike culture there was definitely on board with us. And, you know, like, like happens when, when you go to places that they don't have a lot of production. At first they kind of like see you and you're there in their space and they'll be like, ah, what are you doing here? Get out or give me 200 bucks or whatever. But what we did was we tried to make the, the community as involved as possible in the production. Uh, if some kids were running around or doing something, we'll just, okay, come on, be a PA do something like and they felt empowered they felt like there was something they could do like there's this kid called marvin who was like that he was always on set in the morning had nothing to do so we gave him a job as security pa and then we had an incident with one of the actors that couldn't ride a bike and we went to him and we're like uh, you can ride a bike, right? And he's like, yeah, I can ride. I'm like, okay, then you're going to act. Okay. He's like, well, I haven't acted before. I'm like, well, don't worry, you'll learn. So we got him an acting coach and we prepped him up and he delivered. That's the guy that steals the bike. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's, he's not an he's, actor. He's great. He's, he's not so an actor, good. But he's a kid yeah. from Baltimore, yeah. from the community that stepped up. It's a, that's a big part for someone. A big too. part yeah. for somebody yeah. like that. He did stunts, he acted, oh, yeah. and he showed emotion. <laughs> and, and it was very impressive because... And this is big shout outs to him because he really took it seriously. And for him, it was, he feels like, and he's been telling me this and he's very thankful about it. Like he finally found his calling. That's, a, you that's, know what that's I mean? fantastic. And if we're able to do this in a community, you can do it anywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, man, yeah. that's powerful stuff. It really is. So no, for me, that's one of the most fulfilling things about this. Yeah, that, that, that's incredible. Hey, uh, we're, we're just about out of time here. Um, where can people find you? Are you on the interwebs? If someone wants to follow you on Instagram, or mm -hmm. do you do any of that sort of stuff? Do you, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, a lot of people don't, so I, no, I, I, I got people don't. Yeah. I'm an Instagram whore. <laughs> I love Instagram. I think it's a great way of connecting. But yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Alo Hemingway. ALO Hemingway, right. uh, but the other ones from Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever is Angel Manuel Soto. Perfect. Angel, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. 
Hey, that was Angel Manuel Soto. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Definitely a reminder to our uh, listeners, check out Charm City Kings. It's cool. It's on HBO Max. It's playing now. HBO Max is really cool. I'm, I'm digging HBO Max. Quick update, actually. We did a, right after Sundance this year, we had a really uh, wonderful podcast with the filmmakers behind uh, Dinner in America. And just a quick update, Dinner in America just won the first ever Nightstream Film Festival, which uh, was an online festival and basically combined five different genre festivals all into one. And the winner was uh, Dinner in America. So congratulations, guys. That's that's really fantastic. And uh, I can't wait to uh, read about wherever you guys are going to land for distribution. But I'm glad you're still out there uh, kicking butt on the festival. Festival circuit. That's wonderful. Kick all the ass. And now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is time for short ends. What is your obsession this week? Well, I try to stay away from technology. I do really try to stay away from technology, but every once in a while, something comes along that I think is really interesting and really kind of ticks all the boxes for a lot of people out there. And, um, this well, one, you say you try and stay away from technology on the podcast. On the podcast, yeah. Your whole yeah. business is a technology business. It, it is, and that Monday through Friday, that's sort of my business. But you know, uh, when it comes to the podcast, I try to shy away from that, try to find other things. But I want to mention a little piece of technology which is pretty damn amazing. Especially, it is price conscious and will work for a lot of people out there. Uh, one of the things that, from the earliest days of uh, wireless video, I've I've been involved. I've been involved with uh, with companies that produce it. Uh, and I'm talking about like point to point sort of like, Hey, wireless video streaming from your camera to a receiver that someone can look at or to the internet or things like that. Used to be that these were incredibly expensive systems had, uh, some delay or then eventually no delay. And then the price came down. Well, the prices come down even more and the delay is, uh, minimal. And one of the big sort of uh, features that I think a lot of people have wanted to have that was quite expensive and had a lot of delay and was not really implemented particularly well was being able to stream from a camera to a Android or I device, basically being able to watch from a camera on your phone. The systems mm. that did it were expensive. They were big, they were bulky and uh, had a lot of delay. So it was kind of a, it was not a great solution for most people, but there's a new system out there and the name just kind of rolls off the tongue. It's a Axoon Cinei 2 Pro Wireless Video Transmitter and Receiver Set. It's $599. What? And yeah, and they're about the size of like maybe like a deck of cards, a couple of deck of cards, a deck of cards for the receiver, a deck of cards for the transmitter. They do have some big antennas uh, that you put on as well. But it allows you to go 1,200 feet line of sight, and it transmits in full HD up to 60 frames per second, and it does two full things. Full HD, so it doesn't do 4K. No, but most people are not monitoring 4K wirelessly. That, that's, that's true. You don't need, don't need to monitor 4K. It gives you a ton of advanced features, but it also gives you the ability to go to four receivers, and four different iOS or Android devices simultaneously, which is really, really cool. So you can essentially have, uh, you know, it's got HDMI, you plug into it, it does all the major frame rates, and voila, with uh, less than 60 milliseconds, and there is actually a, a mode for less than 20 milliseconds, so it's it's very, very, very low latency, and for $599, that's really tough to beat, especially with that kind of range. Yeah. Do you remember back in the day, it was shortly after the iPad came out, so it was maybe eight, nine years ago or more, Michael Cioni had a demo of this uh, iPad-driven system that used streaming video to watch stuff on iPads, make quick comments. It was something that Lightiron had developed specifically for David Fincher. Hmm. It was it was like a software ecosystem that like fit in a briefcase 
that would stream that stuff so every department could see whatever was in there and the director could quickly make some very basic notes on the fly and then the metadata would travel upstream with all the footage but you could also review all dailies on your ipad if you were given access it was a thing where you know there's obviously security was high now is that kind of thing still around and would that integrate with something like this i believe that is still around it was something i think um and you can look it up at lightiron.com but they call it the lily pad system and that was it that was it yeah and it was a, an onset creative tool that uh, gave you calibrated monitors and different surfaces and all kinds of things storage and supported a lot of different things that was a proprietary rental only thing so mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily need this $599 thing to to get into that. But I have no doubt that now that this is so cheap, there will probably be apps and other sort of third party things that will work with it where you'll be able to make notes or you could probably still just make notes on your phone and look at what time it is in order to understand the time code. If you're doing time of day time code to make sure that uh, everything is more or less in, in sync. But yeah, the Lilypad system is uh, the Adobe uh, ecosystem actually has something like that where you can make time of day related notes notes very quickly and then it just syncs up to your footage but uh you know sort of the idea would be that you would just it's it's more for documentary where you're like letting an interview go and making notes about the interview on the fly yeah i think that is uh, i think that's really capable i think that like what what premiere where i should say adobe it's it's in part of that whole you know creative suite they have they have that um, logging sort of um software. I can't remember which app it is on there, but I do know that they have some pretty cool functionality like that. But yeah, it's sort of the way of the future. I think that it sets not going to become paperless, but already there's a lot less uh, paper call sheets than there ever were before. And um, I got to say, since we had Byron Warner on here talking about scriptation, I downloaded scriptation and I, I haven't had a big enough project to make it really worth it. But looking at his notes on scriptation and kind of dicking around with it, I'm like, that would be way more practical in my opinion than having uh, a paper notebook for for all you know like paper notebooks are the worst you 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 set them down you lose them you know the wrong person opens it and looks at your notes like you just don't want that but like having something like scriptation with all that stuff laid out really clearly but anyway getting back to what you're talking about zero latency or very low latency transmission to a tablet device is kind of been the dream since we first saw it and it was my understanding that especially in the mac world it had something to do with the developer kit on the mac side that prevented you from having zero latency that was what i was told back then anyway yeah i I don't think that's quite so much I think that's a little bit uh, that's a little bit false. I think really what it came down to is whenever you need to move images and to make them work on most sort of mobile phone and tablet type of devices, they usually have to be turned into like an H.264. They have to be turned into a different file format. It has to be compressed with MPEG. Yeah. It has to add, and that that process takes time. And if you do that, that means there's the delay from that from those files being received and that format being transcoded to something new. And uh, that that was the, the number one thing. I, I know that there is some hardware encoding that goes on now that's much, much faster. And if you can send then uh, with the hardware encoding, if you can send the, the format that the mobile phone wants to receive, you can cut down a lot of that, that latency. Mm. Yeah. No, that's really cool. I'm going to look into that. Yeah, um, and, and you, know, you can find it at Hot Ride Cameras, hotridecameras.com. You can find the Cine oh. i2. Yes, it's, uh, you know, we've got it on our site. We've been playing around with it. We did some tests Man, down the street. i got to have something like, that I can sell that I can make my short end. You, well, you, you can, can like, you can sell that book. I, I mean, I know it doesn't. That's true. Doesn't I, don't, I, don't make money, any, I, don't, I don't make any more money <laughs> if, if we sell a bunch of those books, though. So, But you know what? I hope someone wins that book. I hope one of our listeners goes to the podcast on on YouTube, goes finds the Cinematography Podcast, subscribes, and then comments on the How to Vote video and 
and they win. So that would be great. Very cool. Yeah. Yes. All right. So Ben, what's your the, showdown this week? I just want people to read my book and love me. Um, <laughs> You've already okay, got so, the love part under control. <laughs> you seem to have. So, seem, I've seen what happens when you post something on Facebook and like three million people respond to you. That's true. Three million. It's it's true. And that's not that's not exaggeration or hyperbole. It's it's like <laughs> three million. It's like Justin Bieber and then Ben Rock. So uh, my short end is super niche and weird. Strap in, everyone. This might get boring. Whoa. <laughs> I've talked at great length on here about my web series that Bob DeRosa and I created uh, called 20 Seconds to Live. There was an episode that we did starring horror icon Derek Mears, by the way, called Astaroth. And there was something I wanted to do in it, which was Astaroth, the demon, was going to emerge from a cloud of flies. That was in my script. It was something I was very excited about trying to figure out how to do. And I hit the wall on that one and gave up on it. So if you watch Astaroth right now online, like I, I actually showed it to a VFX pro friend of mine who uh, we've also probably mentioned on the podcast before, Tom Moser. And he's like, you don't need the flies. And I was like, yeah, I don't need the flies. And it, and it was something where I would have to pay somebody a lot of money to do this. Uh, it wasn't really something I was able to do myself. But jump forward to today, <laughs> because you? I never uh, give up on on an idea that I f- of my own that I fall in love with. <laughs> um, I you every now flies. and then would go- w- I would every now and then Google like After Effects flies to see if there was a way to do it. I actually found a guy on uh, Vimeo who had done something with flies and After Effects, and they looked very real. And he he was considering helping me out with it. And I could have thrown him a little bit of money, but I, he didn't know me from Adam, and I understand why he said no. And he was probably—I think he was too busy anyway. So not too long ago, I, in my search for After Effects flies, I stumbled across a company called Creation Effects. I—I unf- I don't know who they are. I'm not—I'm not like shilling for them at all. And they have a plugin for After Effects called Swarms that is fifty bucks, hmm. and. It's not like, hey, uh, put flies on this and make it look cool. Like you have to do a lot of a lot of work, but it includes like I forget what it actually it says on the website, so I can just look right here. There's 18 different species, so it's like flies and bees and butterflies and wasps and all, all kinds of stuff, um, all kinds of flying bugs. And they've made sort of a 3D model that if you look at the 3D model, it looks correct if you're looking at it uh, orthographically. Mm. So straight on from the side, straight down from the top, straight up from the bottom, whatever. But if you were looking at it from the front, it looks kind of like a plus sign because they've basically created these 3D kind of flat, surfaces that kind of line up but because flies and stuff like that are really small it kind of doesn't like you can sort of get away with it and yeah and and built into the programming of it like built into the plugin when you download it is like the fly flapping motion and uh landing behaviors and like they've programmed a lot of bug behavior into it they also make one that's schools of fish they also make one that's flocks of birds and again, they come in multiple iterations and breeds and stuff like that. And uh, I kind of bring it up because I haven't necessarily had this thought before, but sometimes if you have an, an exterior and you're like, yeah, that sky kind of looks dead. It'd be nice to have something there. You could easily drop in these birds. And if you look at the demos on there, they're reasonably convincing. Like, you know, if you if you were going to do a, a, an extreme close-up of a bird, it, probably not the way to go. But if you needed to have, like, a flock of birds up in the sky doing some stuff, either for a very specific dramatic reason or even just a visual interest to kind of break it up. I mean, like, I, I've hit this before where, like, the sky, it's like a perfectly blue sky and it's kind of a boring shot. I'm like, hey, what if I put some clouds? 
clouds and I, you know, go into After Effects and key out the sky and drop in some clouds and put a little bit of cloud movement into them and stuff like that just to kind of give it some life. Birds, bugs, stuff like that could be a really interesting way to do it. So I thought I would share it with our listeners because it's something that like I wanted for a very specific effect several years ago didn't have it, didn't have a way to do it. And uh, I'm just excited that I found that there is a way to do it. And it's, again, it's not like a drag and drop. There's there's your awesome flock of birds. You're going to have to track your shot and figure out where it all goes, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be some work. It's going to be some work. That's life. But it still, I think, is a really cool company that has plugins that I think uh, could uh, liven up some of your footage. Nice. I mean, it, it, you can get that plague of locusts you always wanted. You can get that emerging, yeah. uh, you know, a demon from a from a swarm of flies. You can you can do all this fun stuff now. For, and for if your next question is Ben, did you buy that plugin and you're gonna fuck around with a thing you made in 2014 to see if you can add it and prove that your idea would work? The answer is yes. Ooh. Will I release it? I don't know yet. We'll see. Hmm. I, I still have. I, I only got it the other day. Uh, I've only really begun to crack it open. I think I might for some of the shots need to get like a stock image of a real fly somehow or film a real fly like it, some of the close up stuff. It might not work, hmm. but I'm going to try it with the plug in. And uh, I don't know. I'm just glad that stuff like this exists. And, and I think that it's one of those things where, you know, if you had like, let's say you had a still photograph you shot someone in front of a green screen and you were trying to set them in the forest or whatever. Uh, the forest is probably a bad thing because wind would be blowing the leaves, but like something, a cityscape or something, and you wanted to bring a little bit of life to everything, you could do things like have clouds move. You could add birds in the background out of focus. Like once you throw that shit out of focus, no one's going to question it at all as long as it looks reasonably convincing. Um, but it just brings that much more life to your footage and, uh, you know, makes us all better filmmakers when we have these tricks up our sleeves. It's, it's, it's a bag of tricks kind of a plug-in. And, and super, super affordable, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. 50 bucks, man. 50 bucks. I got 18, bug, 18 species there. It's going to be more than flies. I'll, I'll definitely have uh, <laughs> some wasps and stuff fl- flying around in there, too, just for variety. Nice. That sounds if, great. If I'm able to do it. I mean, like, I might get 20 minutes into this and be like, I do not need to go get, uh, you know, a master's degree in calculus to figure out this plugin, <laughs> which has been the case with some plugins. So. Uh, I, I, something tells me it's not going to be qu- it's not going to be quite that level of uh, surgery. I think you'll do fine. Well, there's a tutorial on their website that I watched that kind of showed how it worked. And it's like, it's some work. It's because you're working in, th- they have 2D swarms and 3D swarms. So the 2D swarms are sort of like, hey, I want to have a swarm over here that kind of goes in this direction. 3D swarms, you you literally have to be thinking about three, you have to be constantly referencing the top down view and figuring out where you want stuff to be in that 3D space. And within my project, because I already have like a gazillion After Effects shots in this whole sequence where the demon kind of comes together. Because long, long story short, they kill a rabbit. They they spray the rabbit blood on the ground. The the blood, uh, it sort of brings about Astroth. But the original idea was that it would turn into flies, and she would emerge from the swarm of flies. Hmm. So I already have all these all these After Effects comps that are very very complicated comps indeed. So I, I need to. Uh, dig into uh, what I was thinking, you know, whatever, six years ago when I was actually doing this. Nice. I, uh, now right. I have bored the crap out of everybody. Well, Sorry, I, I, everybody. There's no, there's no one still listening to this episode, so let's get to the thank yous. Not at all. Uh, let's, uh, <laughs> hey, uh, don't, forget, <laughs> don't forget to like and subscribe or review or enter the contest for the book over at our YouTube channel. Uh, for God's sakes, do all these things. They're free and they help us a lot. Uh, ben, where can people find you? 
go to benrockonline.com. I've recently revamped it, and uh, and uh, you can find all my social media links there. Go on LinkedIn and, and, and befriend me on LinkedIn, and, you know, let's start a chat. Chat me up on LinkedIn. Who cares? I know LinkedIn is dorky. Do it anyway. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, but you can find me Monday through Friday over at Hot Rod Cameras. Hey, let's thank uh, our producer, Alana Cody, for making this episode happen. And let's also thank uh, Ben Katz, our intrepid editor, who's making all of us sound somewhat less boring than we actually are. And, Hopefully. And uh, let's thank Kay Zalatracci, who is... Kay Zalatracci, who, if he does listen to this episode, is going to call me up to scoff that I bothered picking up a plug-in for flies, because if I only spent the next six years of my life learning, uh, you know... You could have done it for free. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> no, he wouldn't have done it for no, free. No, you could have done it, it for free. He, you I could, I could have done it for free with just the, the cost of a, you know, several-year learning curve of uh, lear- learning about fly anatomy and, uh, you know, picking up a model on Turbo Squid and... Ugh, all that fun stuff. <laughs> a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff that no one in my position is ever going to do. Anyway. All right. But thanks, Kays, for all your amazing music and everything you do, because you do everything that everyone does. Yeah, probably better than everyone else. Uh, okay. Oh, for sure. No question. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, dear listeners, thank you for, for tuning in to another episode. We will be back next week with more Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Listener.